All right, this is part two. I know the outline says part one. I copied and pasted a slide for the title of the outline, and I messed up. I didn't realize that I didn't change it to part two. So you should have an outline that says part one, but it's actually part two. All right, just so you'll, just so you'll know how, how confusing is that. We're on lesson nine. This is the last lesson uh, in this series and probably uh, time for it to be. Let's, let's pick up right where we left off. I asked the question, number one, should exorcism be a normal experience in the Christian's experience? We looked at a number of verses of Scripture that actually indicate to us that it is not uh, normal. doesn't mean that it can never happen. But this should not be something that's happening every other day in the Christian experience. In fact, the New Testament provides absolutely no instructions as to how to exercise demons. So if uh, casting out demons is one of the primary roles for the Christian, then the Bible left us kind of flat-footed because it doesn't tell us how to do it. Now, like I've told you, guys like Bob Larson say, well, we found out from the demons how to do it. Well, I'm not sure how many demons I'm trusting. So, uh, but, the, but the New Testament gives us no instruction. Number two, if casting out demons is a primary work of the Lord, why didn't he cast out the demons uh, that were in the Pharisees and Sadducees? As far as I know, he didn't cast demons out at any of them, but I guarantee you they were reeking with them. And they had demons all over them. Why didn't he cast the demons out of them? And by the way, it's also interesting to note that Jesus never went out uh, by saying to his disciples that morning, we're going to go demon hunting today, so just kind of buckle up because we're going to go get some demons. I mean, he just didn't do that. In fact, he didn't even announce to them, we're going to go healing today. It was just a course of events that happened during the day, and quite often he would downplay those things because he knew that miracles tend to create a circus atmosphere where people are more enthralled about the miracle than they are the miracle worker, which is, of course, the Lord. So he knew all of that. How can we know if an exorcism is real or a demonic deception? Since they are into deceiving, uh, how do we know that we've actually cast a demon out of someone? Maybe that demon is lying saying that he's cast out when he's just going to turn around and come right back in. And Jesus, of course, gives us the story of a lost man who had a demon, and the demon's cast out of him, and that demon just goes, gets, goes and gets seven other demons worse than he is, and the eight of them repossess the guy, and Jesus says he's in worse shape then than he was before the one demon was cast out of him. Which, of course, then tells us that casting demons out of unsaved people is a waste of time. They have no protection. I believe that Christians can't even be demon-possessed, so you can't cast demons out of Christians because demons can't possess Christians. Now, can Christians be oppressed? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Paul warns us, don't give place to the devil. The Bible is clear about not messing around with that which is unholy because it can invite certain demonic activity around us, but not, uh, not possession. And then, of course, we must evaluate everything by Scripture, not Scripture by everything. Now, you say, well, who would do that? Lots of people. There are many, many Christians, even well-meaning Christians that are not part of these crazier word of faith and all movements, who actually, if you listen to them for very long, they evaluate what they, evaluate what they believe by what has happened to them. That is a major error. I preached actually about that last Sunday. We cannot evaluate Scripture by our experience. We must evaluate our experience by Scripture you say, well, Dan, are you saying that the Bible deals with everything in this world? No. 
No, the Bible doesn't say anything about air conditioning. The Bible says nothing about jet airplanes. The Bible says nothing about the lunar module. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that the Bible does not touch on, right? But the Bible deals with everything we need to know, the Bible says itself, for for godliness and obedience to Christ. And that's the key. There's much more to the spiritual realm than we know. The problem is, how can we know that what we think we know is correct if it's not established scripturally? See, that's the problem. And so you have a lot of these people who are all off into all this stuff, but then when you ask them, well, where do you, where do you get that? Well, it isn't the Bible. Well, it's because experience has taught us. Well, what if your experience is wrong? The demons are master deceivers. Paul says they even transform themselves into angels of light to deceive the very elect, meaning the, 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 the choicest believers. Why in the world would you think that the demons would be honest with us? They won't be. Their, their, their master is the father of lies. So the whole idea of experience is just not a good judge. What is spiritual warfare? Well, we said that in a word, it's a battle over truth, not territory. Uh, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. He didn't say anything about taking over anything. Uh, Jude 3, Jude tells us to contend for the faith, not contend for territory. Now you say, are you, then Dan, do you mean that Christians shouldn't exert themselves into the world? No, I'm not saying that. We're called to be salt and light. But I do not find in Scripture an explicit command to go in and take over. I just do not find that. Oh, I know a parable about occupy till I come, but it's debatable as to what Jesus was really referring to as it would apply to us. And I personally do not think that means that we're to go in and militarily take over. We are to live our lives as believers to overcome sin and evil with the Spirit of God. And in doing so, when we're salt and light, we ought to fill up the legislature with born-again Christians. We ought to fill up all the elected offices with born-again Christians. We ought to, yeah, of course. But there's a warning here that I have for you. There's a lot of born-again Christians in the legislature right now that call themselves Republicans that are voting wrong that are doing wrong things. So just because you've got a born-again Christian in the legislature does not mean that we're safe. They've got to know more than just that they're a Christian. They've got to know how republic works. They've got to know what the, the responsibility of government is, what the responsibility of government is not, all these things. So this whole idea of spiritual warfare is really a battle over truth according to Scripture. Number three, but aren't we at war against the devil and his demons? Well, Peter does say, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a, a lion seeking whom he may devour. That's, that's true. But notice what we are to do. We're not to punch him in the face. We're not to rebuke him. We're to resist him. Now, I don't want to get too much into that because we're going to come to that in just a moment. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus faces Satan more than we ever will. You remember after he had fasted for 40 days and nights, we call it the temptation. Uh, and, and, and that's correct in that the devil is tempting Jesus. Jesus was never tempted, but Satan was trying. And notice that every time that Jesus strikes back at the devil, he uses truth. Notice he never rebukes the devil. He never tells the devil, go to hell. 
He never grabs the devil spiritually by the neck and starts strangling him. None of that stuff. You don't have Jesus in an arm wrestling match with Satan or they're not Indian leg wrestling. They're laying there out in the wilderness somewhere. Jesus says, I can flip you. I guarantee you I can whip you. But if you listen to modern Christians, it's almost as if they're in a boxing match with the devil. Let's punch Satan in the face and all that kind of... Jesus didn't do any of that. And he's the master and Lord of creation and actually the one who created Lucifer to start with. He quotes scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. Now the Bible tells us that after he did that, the devil did leave him, but not permanently. So this whole idea that we're going to just overcome the devil and then that battle's done, well, that's, that battle is not done. He will come back. It's an ongoing battle. So number four, doesn't scripture teach that we need to put on spiritual armor? In the slide before here, I'm talking about aren't we at war with the devil? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't really say we're at the war with the devil. Now, I will tell you that Ephesians 6.12 does say that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Well, that is true, meaning that people are not the enemy. I think that's an important verse because you don't need to focus on people. So really, Nancy Pelosi is not the enemy. Chuck Schumer is really not the enemy. It's the evil behind them that's the enemy. And we need to remember that. So yeah, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We are up against principalities and powers, against the rulers of of darkness of this world, against wickedness in high places. Yes, there's no question that the demons are fighting what is good on the earth. But it's interesting when you look at Scripture that the Bible says that we're actually at war against the flesh. You find far more passages of Scripture dealing with your battle with the flesh. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one uh, to uh, uh, contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. Notice where the battle is. First John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then one more verse here. I think should be popping up. Eventually, I'm trusting that it will. Here we go. For I know that in me, Paul says, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. So Paul here is reminding us of the battle with the flesh. And then Jesus sums it up by saying, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now these are just a few examples of where the Bible focuses on where our fight is. Now, do the demons... Does Satan use our flesh against us? Oh, of course. I'm not suggesting that the devil is not the enemy. But what I am suggesting is that the New Testament does not teach that you ought to get up every day and start battling with the devil. Or that you ought to start battling with demons. What the New Testament says we ought to do is wrangle the flesh and bring it into submission. Walk in the spirit so that you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. That's where the battle is. Now, the reason why I make this distinction is because if you listen to a lot of the modern television and radio personalities, preachers, 
What they'll lead you to believe is that what you need to be doing is out there claiming stuff in the name of Jesus and whipping these demons and, and, you know, taking dominion over this and let's overcome that. But while they're doing that, they're some of the most fleshly people I've ever seen. I've watched them. Go online and look at some of the surprise interviews that some journalists have had the courage to do of people like Kenneth Copeland. There's a particular interview where a journalist, probably not a Christian, so I'll I'll grant you that, but this journalist catches him at his airport, and he's unprepared for the questions that she throws at him. And actually, her questions are very legitimate. Basically, what she's wanting to know is, why does a man of God have so much wealth that you have? Why do you have so many jet airplanes? Why are you constantly wanting to buy another jet? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? It's really, these are legitimate questions that ought to be asked of him. And you you will be embarrassed when you watch how he responds to her. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. I've watched it. I, I wish I had the link for you and I'd just give it to you. Maybe I need to look it up. If you have trouble finding it, let me know. But it's just embarrassing to watch how this supposed spiritual giant responds to legitimate questions. It's just like Jesse Duplantis trying to raise money for a new G, whatever number it was, jet, because his jet didn't provide enough room for him to get down in the floor, prostrate, and, and, and pray. So he needed so many more millions to buy this larger jet. You see, that is the flesh. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to have anything. If God blesses you, God blesses you, and I think that's fantastic. I'm not saying that having things is a sin, but these guys have taken materialism to a whole new level. I don't know that it's true about him now, but Benny Hinn, when he used to jet set around the world using the ministry jet to go everywhere... In some hotels where he would stay, he would rent an entire suite for himself that was equipped with a, 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 a pool in, in his suite, a swimming pool with all this Italian marble and all this kind of stuff. And if I remember the numbers correctly, it was like 15 grand per night that he would spend. Now, the only reason I'm saying that is not because I'm trying to bash Benny Hinn. Here they're always after devils and demons, but it seems to me that the flesh has overcome them. That's where the real fight is. Did the demons and the devil work against us? Yes, they do, but it's through the flesh. Remember, don't evaluate Scripture by your experience. Evaluate your experience by Scripture. And Scripture throughout, these are just a few examples, remind us that our fight is with the flesh. It's not necessarily with the devil. Is he an enemy? Of course he is. Is he like a roaring lion? Of course he is. Are there principalities and powers fighting the kingdom of God? Of course they are. But the way they are working in us is through our flesh. We need to focus on that rather than trying to cast a demon out of this or to find the devil here or the devil's after me. More than likely, the devil has bigger fish to fry than than you and me. And he's probably not messing with us. So we just need to keep that in mind, biblically speaking. Okay, now that comes to number four. Well, doesn't Scripture teach that we need to put on spiritual armor? Well, it does. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, Paul does talk about spiritual armor. 
But there's something important that I think we need to remember about this. Paul is using armor as an analogy. Paul is not saying that you literally have to get up every morning and literally go through the list and put everything on. I've actually heard preachers, and I'm talking about good, solid preachers, teach this, that every morning you have to put on this armor. Actually, Paul is using the analogy of how a Roman soldier's armor protected him against the enemy. So just as the armor would protect a Roman soldier, these things are your inherent protection against evil. So here's the thing. If you have to put on each piece, what happens if you forget a piece? So while you're running through the litany of these pieces you're putting on, if this is literal, what happens if you fail to put on one of the pieces? Are you then vulnerable in that area? What happens if during the day the piece falls off? And, and here's, here's another question. If we're actually literally putting this on, how can you put on or pull off the righteousness of Christ? Because that's one of the pieces of the armor. Obviously, you can't. What Paul is doing here is he's teaching an analogy. What he's saying is, is that if you're in Christ you have the spiritual protection of the Lord. And you need to walk consciously in His protection, being obedient to Him. It doesn't do any good if you've memorized all the pieces of the armor and every morning you get up and mentally put those on, but then you walk out into the world disobeying God and controlled by your flesh. You see what I'm saying? This is a word game sometimes that is played. And so there are many Christians who, who literally get into this, well, I did this and I checked this off my list and I did that and I did this, so I must be ready to go. When the truth is that was never a literal thing that Paul was saying to do. It's an analogy. And what we need to be doing is walking in obedience. Yes, understanding that we have the protection of God, but that we're doing battle with the flesh. That's where the battlefield is. So it doesn't make any sense uh, to put on or pull off the righteousness of Christ. And if you could pull off the righteousness of Christ, why would you want to? I mean, see, see how silly this is when you carry it out to the nth degree? One of, one of the, the, uh, the techniques that I've always used about some belief is take a belief and then carry it to the nth degree. Don't just stop with it here. Because some people say, well, do you think that's true? Well, carry it to the nth degree and then see. So if literally the shield of faith is literally a shield that you carry around, well, then what about the righteousness of Christ? Can you take that on and put it off? I mean, see, see it, it, it begins to fall apart when you carry this thinking to its nth degree. And then Paul has been teaching on all of these pieces of armor throughout the book of Ephesians. If you read through Ephesians, he's dealing with fighting the good fight. And even though he doesn't necessarily mention these as pieces of armor, he's covered all of these things, the righteousness of Christ, faith, uh, the, the, the belt of truth, uh, the, the, the gospel that your feet are shod. He, he's covered all of this previously in the book of Ephesians, and it's like chapter 6, this armor is a conclusion it's like he's saying, now all these things I've been talking about are like a Roman soldier's armor. And then he uses the analogy. So we need to be careful when we read scripture that we don't read into it what was not there. 
Do we need to be aware of the fact that, that the Lord is our armor and He is our protection? Of course we do. But you do not literally pick up the shield of faith. You don't literally put on the helmet of salvation. You don't put on salvation on a, day, on a daily basis. Does that, does that make sense to you? So you see how people are misled into, into taking things literal when they aren't, and then other times symbolizing stuff when it's literal. We just need to understand how to properly read Scripture like we would read any other book to that degree. Keep everything within its context, and all of a sudden we won't have these crazy aberrant beliefs. Number five, the power of God is found in the gospel. Not in your being able to put on some piece of armor. Now let me prove that to you. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. And literally the word power there, many of you know this, is the Greek word dunamis, and it's where we get our word dynamite. So Paul is telling us that the greatest spiritual dynamite that you have is the gospel. So if you're going to fight the powers of darkness... You don't do it by quoting something or by claiming something. You do it with the gospel. In John chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus who die. The rich man goes to hell not because he's rich, but because he trusted his riches. Lazarus doesn't go to heaven because he's poor. He goes to heaven because he was poor in spirit as well. So you have Lazarus in a place that we'd call heaven, rich man in a place we'd call hell. And remember, the rich man in hell asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to witness to his brothers. You remember that request? Now here's the thing. It's interesting what Abraham says. He doesn't say, well, they're just a, couple, they're just a bunch of hard-headed guys. They won't come to the Lord. Now here's what he says. They have Moses and the prophets. Now what, what would that be another way of saying they have the Bible, because in that day, that's the Old Testament. So basically what Abraham is saying is they have the Bible. If they won't believe the Bible, i.e. God's Word, they wouldn't be convinced if one came back from the dead. Now that is a key point that you need to understand. People who demand miracles do not have the faith that God is calling for. You remember what Jesus said, only an adulterous and sinful generation seeks after a sign? And I'm not going to give it to you, he said. The sign I'm going to give you is the one of Jonah. Three days and nights in the whale, three days and nights in the grave. That's the sign I'm going to give you. Other, in other words, it's the resurrection. Well, isn't that the capstone of the gospel? So it's very important that we understand that the Bible places the emphasis on truth, not on, quote, some armor that you can actually reach out and put on, or not in claiming or quoting certain, certain things. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. What brings people out from under the dominion of Satan into light is the gospel. It's not casting some demon out. And remember, if a person is not saved, it doesn't do any good to cast the demon out anyway. Number six, can we bind Satan? Now, here's something that I'll be honest with you. Here's a little time of confession. Over the years, I have prayed, and at times, like in a service or whatever, I've prayed, and, and Father, we bind Satan in the name of Jesus. You've heard people pray that. Maybe you've prayed that. Well, does the Bible teach that we can bind Satan? Actually, the truth is, no, it doesn't teach that. 
The only place in Scripture where I can find that we can actually bind Satan is not us at all. It's in Revelation chapter 20, and it is an angel that binds Satan right at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. And Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That is the only actual passage of Scripture that I can find in the Bible where Satan is bound. Now, you say, well, what about when Paul tells Peter that you, anything you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, loose on earth? Be, we'll get to that. But let's first deal with the subject of where in Scripture do we find Satan bound? That's the only passage. You do not see Peter saying, Satan, I bind you, and now I'm going to write Second Peter chapter whatsoever. You don't hear Paul saying to the early churches he's planning, I bind Satan from Ephesus. I bind Satan from Colossae. You never hear the apostle saying this. I would argue we don't have the authority to bind Satan. Now you say, well, wait, wait just a minute. Well, let's look at some scripture that we've seen previously. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now the them that he's talking about directly is false teachers, but also demons. Even the angels, and we're talking about holy angels, are careful about the pronunciations and their rebuking and their cursing. Now here's one that's even more explicit. In the book of Jude, you're aware of this, we've already looked at it previously, but in the book of Jude, verses 9, 10, and 11, when the Bible is discussing what I agree is kind of a, a, an intriguing passage about Michael and Satan arguing over the body of Moses after Moses has died on Mount Nebo, it's interesting to note that Michael, now Michael is the archangel. So he's one of the highest ranking angels in heaven. But as far as I understand scripture, he would have been beneath Lucifer in authority. It appears that Lucifer may have been the highest ranking angel of all the angels. So even Michael recognized that he did not have the authority to rebuke Satan. Even though now Satan is a fallen angel and Michael is still a faithful angel. And so what does he do? He calls on the Lord to rebuke Satan. And this we're talking Michael and he's facing down the devil over the body of Moses. That's a little different than you're trying to fix a flat tire. Or get a washing machine that's on the, on the fritz to work. That's a little different level of struggle. I mean, you got Michael facing down Satan over who's going to get the body of Moses. That's a pretty big deal. And even Michael did not rebuke Satan. He said, the Lord will have to rebuke you. Meaning that Michael did not believe that he had the authority to bind or to rebuke Satan. Now, I think that's very significant because you hear Christians all over the place binding and rebuking the devil, right? I mean, well-meaning Christians. I'm not talking about people that are off into heresy. I'm talking about well-meaning, but they're always rebuking and binding Satan. And yet you do not find the apostles doing this. So let's write these down. There is no example in Scripture of the apostles ever binding Satan. I cannot find one example. 
You say, well, Dan, does that mean that they can't? Well, no, I guess it doesn't mean that I can prove conclusively that, that you can't bind Satan. But since the apostles didn't, and I want to start arguing from the silence of Scripture, I can get into real trouble real fast by using things that the Bible doesn't say to build my belief structure. We better stick with what the Bible says rather than assuming certain things that the Bible does not say. And I would think, since we have so many epistles written by the apostles, if it was the job of Christians to be binding Satan, one of them would have mentioned that. Don't you think? Yeah, they would have mentioned that. Nowhere in Scripture are we given the power to bind Satan. I find nowhere in Scripture where I'm given the authority to bind Satan. Now, the, the, the obvious is going to become clear here in just a moment. Remember I said the nth degree thing? Remember, always take something and you're wondering about it. Well, carry it to the nth degree. So if Christians do have the power to bind Satan, why isn't Satan bound? There's enough Christians praying around the world today. Satan, I bind you. He ought to be bound. Is Satan bound right now? No, nowhere in Scripture are we taught that Satan is bound ever until the angel binds him in the bottomless pit. And then he's loosed after the thousand years is over and goes right back to his old antics. So if all of these Christians are binding Satan, why isn't he bound? And if they're binding Satan, then who keeps letting him loose? Because when we talk about Jesus saying binding and loosing, so if he was talking about the devil or demons, then who keeps loosing the devil? Because I don't notice that he's bound at all. In fact, it appears to me that he's working harder and faster now than maybe any time in my lifetime because quite possibly he sees that his time is running out. Which, by the way, is a biblical perspective because when you finally get to the actual great tribulation and he's booted out of heaven for good, the Bible says now he knows he has but a little time. So he can tell by what's going on in the world that he may be nearing his end. Certainly by the great tribulation he will know. So my point is, Satan seems to be less bound today. Demons seem to be less bound today than ever. And yet you've got these Christians all over the place binding Satan and casting out demons. Well then somebody must be loosening him. Somebody must be loosing these bound up demons because they're everywhere. And by the way, if you're going to rebuke the devil, I would highly suggest that you bind him first. That kind of makes sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, what do you do if somebody really wants to rebuke you? Well, you probably try to reach out and tag them, don't you? I mean, don't you, you know? So if you're going to rebuke me, maybe you want to bind me first. And yet Scripture doesn't give any grounds for this teaching. Now, we have a few more points that we need to cover, and we're obviously quickly running out of time Let's begin number seven. We'll get as far as we can, but just please reserve the, the right for me to call a timeout. Doesn't Scripture say believers have the power to bind and loose? Okay, well, where that comes from is Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. So let's look at this passage. Jesus is talking to Peter and to the apostles, and he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed 
in heaven. Now, Bible scholars have wrestled with that passage of Scripture for centuries. First of all, we do not embrace the concept that he's talking about the Catholic Church and that the Catholic Church has the power to forgive men their sins and to loose them from their sins or to bind their sins on them. If you don't confess, Jesus is not making Peter the first pope. None of that. So we reject that completely. But outside of that, theologians have struggled with the Greek translation of this passage of Scripture. So many of you will have somewhere, if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, you will either have a parenthesis somewhere near that verse or somewhere in the column, or you'll have a reference that will take you to the bottom of the page or somewhere in an index or something, and you'll see that a scholar has suggested that what this should say Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, will have been loosed in heaven. Now, I realize that at this point in this discussion, that does not clear up the issue. But we're going to have to stop because you heard the bell and I can't go much longer. So what we'll do next week is we will begin right there. Won't do any review. We'll immediately begin at what did Jesus mean when he said to the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Was he talking about demons or in particular Satan? So we'll begin right there next week and then we'll, we'll wrap up this, this lesson in this series and get ready to move on to something else, okay? So we'll pick up right there. Thank you so much. Hang on to that outline. We'll pick up there next week.